Ezra chapter 4. That's page one, no, 475 in the Church Bibles and page 736 in the Large Print Bibles. Page 475 and page 736. As we come to the book of Ezra again, uh, we've had a, a bit of a break, but we go back in time, two and a half thousand years ago, in the land of Israel. This morning, we saw the land of Israel with King David, the king of a great nation, but in this time, they were no longer a great nation with a land like they had in those days. They were a province in the mighty Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was led by their first great king, King Cyrus the Great. And God's people had been in exile since Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, desecrated the land, and had carried God's people away captive into Babylon. But in chapter 1 of Ezra, we saw that Cyrus issued a decree that God's people could return home to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. We saw that God was behind the decree of Cyrus. It had been prophesied many years before. And chapters 1 and 2 explain that this amazing decree that God had enabled Cyrus to give moved God's people to go back and rebuild Not all of God's people went back, but a good number. We read about that number in Ezra chapter 2. Went back and they established the temple. It was a time of, of great hope, of great expectation. God was on the move and things were going well. In chapters 1 and 2, we read about the return of God's people. And in chapter 3 and up to chapter 6, we read about the rebuilding of the temple. Remember, Ezra is split into three parts. There's the return of God's people, there's the rebuilding of the temple, and there's the restoration of the law. And in chapter 3, which we read many weeks ago now, things continue to go well. In chapter 3, the people there established the worship of God according to the word of God. The altar that they built, the festivals that they gave, the way that they served God, the way that they gave generously, the way that they praised God, all was according to what God's law had said in the books of Moses. And when God is at work, it is shown through people coming under his word. And we saw that all the way from Ezra chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. God is moving through his spirit, through his word, and God's people are coming under his word, obeying his word. And as we read those first three chapters, there should at least be some kind of ache in our hearts for more of this today. Now, God is at work among us. We are seeing people converted. We're seeing people baptized. But there's thousands without Christ, even in our village of Pelsall. We live in a village of over 11,000 people. And our church membership is 100, over, just over 100 people. You can see the need is so very great. We pray that God would move in a mighty way. 
So as we looked at Ezra 1 to 3, we could say, so far, so good. But as we come to chapter 4, things start to go a little bit awry. Whilst it is true that when God is moving, then people, the people of God come under his word, it is also true that when God is moving, the people of God come under attack. While it is true that when God is moving, the people of God come under his word, it is true also that when God is moving, the people of God come under attack. And we see this in Ezra chapter 4. God's people are attacked by an enemy that is opposed to the work of God through his people. And we also, as God's people, come under attack because we also have an enemy. The Bible says our enemy is Satan. In the Lord's Prayer, we said that when we pray, deliver us from evil, some translations say the evil one. So we can talk about the evil one or evil either as Satan himself or his realm. Now, usually we mean his realm. And we have an enemy that wants to undermine the people of God and destroy the work of God. And in this passage tonight, we see that that enemy is manifested in physical people that are attacking the people of God. But our real enemy is not someone or something we can see. Although it's expressed through what is seen, whether it be people or circumstances, we read in Ephesians that that is not who our real enemy is. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, talk about this. And in verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we have a spiritual enemy that is manifested in real people and real circumstances that come against the people of God. And Satan wishes to turn people away from God and destroy themselves, and his schemes to do this use rulers, authorities, dark powers, spiritual forces of evil. But we know that Satan is a defeated enemy, because Jesus has saved us, Satan can no longer lead us to destruction, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the armour of God that we read about to fight against Satan and defend ourselves. But don't be mistaken, we are in a spiritual battle. Every one of us faces this enemy, whether that be in temptation to sin, whether that be in adverse circumstances or attacks from people, whether that be, as, we've pre- as we prayed in some nations, that's physical persecution, force. Whatever form that comes in, we are in a spiritual battle. And Ezra chapter 4 shows us the devil's schemes. And we're going to see two categories of schemes in this chapter that the devil uses. First of all, the enemy attempts to help the people of God. And secondly, how the enemy attempts to hinder the people of God. And then as we come to the end, uh, I don't want to leave this passage with just thoughts on the enemy. We'll look briefly at how to fight the enemy. 
So first of all, let's read Ezra chapter 4, just to start with verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, we see the enemy attempts to help. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. There doesn't seem in these verses to be much of an attack, does there? The people who, in verse 1, cause enemies, in verse 2, are only trying to help. What can be so bad about offering to help in building the temple? The more the merrier, surely. They're building a physical place, surely having more hands to help would be a really good thing. The work would be finished faster. We could use their skills. Maybe they would put some money into the kitty to help us to build. Surely what could be so bad about this? Well, in order to understand what was so bad about what was going on, we have to go back in time even further to another 100 to 150 years before all this was taking place. If you want to turn here, do so, but we're going to look at a a couple of verses in 2 Kings, chapter 17. 2 Kings, chapter 17. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 33 to 34, but before we get there, let me give you some background to this chapter in the Bible. The kingdom of Israel was split into two nations after King Solomon's reign. The northern kingdom had ten tribes and was called Israel. And the southern kingdom had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who we find in Ezra chapter 4. And they had uh, some good kings, but mostly bad kings. But the northern kingdom only had evil kings. Both nations were judged and taken into captivity, but the northern kingdom was a lot earlier. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. The nation was destroyed, the people were taken away, and the king of Assyria decided to send people back to Israel to inhabit the land. Probably the king that did that was Esarhaddon, who we read about in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 2. He wanted to replace the Israelites with other nations. But there was a problem These people did not worship the Lord. And so the Lord sent lions that were going around killing the people who were not worshipping the Lord. They didn't have anyone like the man this morning who was there to fight them in a pit in snow. They were killing the people. And so the king of Assyria sent a priest down to Israel to teach the people how to worship the Lord, which the priest did. But look what happened in verses 33 and 34. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been bought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord 
nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The book of Kings here was likely written during the exile in Babylon, perhaps even during Cyrus's reign. So when it says there, to this day, it's talking about those very people in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, who are offering to help the people of God. It makes more sense in Ezra chapter 4, doesn't it, of why Zerubbabel, the leader, with Joshua, the religious leader, said, no, we won't allow you to help us. So if you turn back to Ezra 4, you can see that they said no, because this wasn't help being offered in God's work by like-minded people. This was help being offered in God's work by people who rejected the Lord as the one true God. They knew how to worship the Lord, they'd been shown that, but they also worshipped other gods. They did not follow the Lord. And notice the subtlety here in verse 2 of their offer for help. They said, like you, we seek your God. Well, first of all, we've seen it's not like them, really, is it? Unlike these people, they worshipped other gods as well. But also notice that they say, we seek your God. Not our God, but your God. In other words, they don't own God as their own. In verse 3, the real people of God use the covenant name of God, the Lord God, the God of Israel. He's the one that they build for. It's an entirely different God. It's like someone coming to us and saying, well, we worship the same God, it's just a different name. No, we worship Jesus, who is the only God. There is one God. We had this come up at 1 on 6 on Friday night. Well, aren't all gods the same? No, we worship Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christianity is an exclusive religion. And the people of God here said, no, it's not the same God. This was not a debate on their views on a whole host of issues of secondary importance. This was non-believers claiming to be believers and offering help with God's work of building his house. And it was very dangerous. And this kind of attack comes to us today in various ways. The enemy tries to help us. Here's some examples. The enemy tries to help us to appeal to the world by trying to show that we don't have to believe all of the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Maybe we can just water down some things because it would really help us to appeal to our culture. A hot topic in our day is the enemy trying to help us and be kind and show Christian love to people who struggle with homosexuality. Now, we must be, of course, kind and show Christian love, but the way they say that we would be helped by that is by us changing what the Bible says about homosexuality. 
So there are people who claim Christianity who will say that the Bible doesn't really say that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, but that other types of marriages are acceptable too. The enemy tries to help us by giving us all sorts of excuses that make sin acceptable. I can date this non-Christian because I can help them come to Christ. Or I can be like everybody else because it would help me to win them to Jesus. Or the enemy may try to help us as a church with requests from lovely people who claim to be Christians to do mission with them and to establish Christian unity and answer the prayer of Jesus in John 17 to be united. But they deny the uniqueness of Christ or the importance of Jesus' death as our substitute and the message is watered down. Why can't we say yes to these things? Surely it's reasonable at first, isn't it? Yes, we want to see people one for Christ. Yes, we want to be kind to those who struggle. Yes, we want to establish Christian unity. But what seems reasonable at first can become heretical very quickly. And you end up losing the very gospel with which the people, people need to be saved. If the people of Judah and Benjamin had said yes, they would have allowed people worshipping other gods into the temple of the Lord. Others would have followed. And this is what happened before they went into exile. They were judged for this. God sent them away because they worship other gods. And to say yes would be to allow that very same thing to go on again. Paul the Apostle talks in 2 Corinthians 6 about not being yoked with unbelievers. And in chapter 7 verse 1, he writes these words. Let us purify ourselves, dear friends, from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. If we allow unbelievers to help to do gospel work, then we contaminate what we are doing. For example, if you have a, a glass of pure water, just one drop of poison poisons the whole glass, doesn't it? And you drink that glass and you could, you could die. If we don't hold to the truth of the gospel, all of it, we don't have a gospel. Now some of you may be asking, well, what are the truths that we need to hold to? Well, that's why we have a statement of faith. We have a statement of faith that tells us gospel truths. Our statement of faith isn't in detail about loads of things that aren't gospel, it aren't uh, heaven or hell issues. But if you don't believe what is on that statement of faith, you have to question, are you a Christian? A Christian believes that God's word is all true. A Christian believes that Jesus is God the Son. A Christian believes that uh, Jesus has died as our substitute on the cross for our sin. If you don't believe those things, you can't be called a Christian. You can be called something else, but not a Christian. Everyone who becomes a member of this church has to say, yes, I agree with the statement of faith. And that's important. And there are times where we must say, no. We must say no. Even though no meant the work would take longer, they said no. Even though no meant 
they lost out on some skills or some finances, they had to say no. And they said no on the basis that God, through the decree from Cyrus, had asked them alone to build the house of the Lord. They were following God's revealed will. And there are times when we have to say, no, we cannot do this. We cannot work with you because God has called those to do his work who believe and obey his word. But before we leave this point, I want to ask another question. And if we flip it on the positive side, when can we say yes? Because we don't have to say no to everything, but when can we say yes? And in the 1960s, Martin Lloyd-Jones was fighting a battle against uh, non-Christians wanting to work with Christians in gospel mission. People that denied the the firm uh, truth of the gospel wanting to work together. And he used an illustration of a house to say when we can say yes, we will work together. If you think of a house, Lloyd-Jones said that the house was where God's people live. Those that believe the truths of the gospel, those things in our statement of faith, are all in the same house. But within the house, there are different rooms. The different rooms are perhaps different denominations, where there are different beliefs on things like baptism. We can say yes to gospel mission work only with those who are in the same house. Those that deny the truth of the faith live somewhere else. We can't work in gospel mission with those people. So, for example, uh, we can, uh, uh, but we can, sorry, do good work with those people. So I can do good work with those outside the house. And an example of that is, uh, for me, I'm a governor at my local school. I work as a governor with lots of people who are not Christians. That's good work. I listened to a seminar on this topic uh, by uh, Al Mola at the conference I went to in March. And he said, if a house was burning down, you would pass the bucket of water to Jehovah's Witness and have it thrown on the house by um, a Muslim. It doesn't matter. You're doing good work. You're helping to put the fire out on someone's house. You're not going to say, well, no, I can't give you the bucket and help with this house because you're a Jehovah Witness. But we can do good work like that with non-Christians, people outside the house. But we can only do gospel work with those who are in the house. So we work, for example, with the Midlands Gospel Partnership. Different churches in different rooms in the house working together to do gospel mission, to do evangelistic work. But I'm not going to invite my fellow governors to come and preach the gospel if they're not Christians. So we can do good work with those outside the house, but gospel work with those inside the house, but there's also church work with those in the same room. So for example, I would uh, preach a a gospel service with uh, some of my brothers in an evangelical Anglican church, but I wouldn't come and have them do a baptism service. That's with people in the same room within our church. So there are lots of things we can say yes We can say, yes, we'll share the gospel with people who believe the same gospel. We can work with other churches in various ways. But we cannot work in gospel work with those who aren't even in the same house as we are. So beware of the schemes of the enemy that attempt to help you. Know your Bible and believe all of it to be true. 
and use it as your yardstick of what is right and wrong and obey what the scripture says even when that is a difficult thing to do. As we move on from verse 3, we see that Zerubbabel, as the leader of God's people, was right to turn down the offer. And the reason that they are called enemies in verse 1 is shown all the more when their true colours are shown in verses 4 to 23. In this section, the subtlety disappears and there's open attack. We see in these verses enemy attempts to hinder. But before I read this section, there's something that needs explaining in order for this passage to make sense. The book of Ezra was written uh, many years after the events that took place in the book. And this chapter is a description of attacks that the enemy made on the people of God during the time of verses 1 to 5, but also in future history as well. That was the, the writer was looking back on. Verses 6 to 23 are what's called a parenthesis, which is, uh, if you like, you could put a bracket at the beginning of verse 6 and a bracket at the end of verse 23 because they jump forward in history to some persecutions that took place in the time of future kings. So they happened before the book was actually written, but after the events of the beginning of chapter 4. And then when we get back to verse 24, we're back in the present time again. So let's read that section together. And as I explain it, I hope that it makes sense. But as we read this, we'll see the open attack upon the people of God. So I'm going to read from verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah in Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabiel, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, along with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, and administrators, over the people from Persia, Uruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants in Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are, attempt, are rebuilding the, that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. 
in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is, is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply to Rahum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of the associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has had a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to, to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this new threat grow? to the detriment of the royal interests. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. I want you to notice in this section how the opposition gets worse and worse throughout the chapter. So in verse 4, we see the word discouraged. Literally, this means uh, weakened their hands. And it was probably hurling insults, mockery, and threats. It made the people afraid to go on working. They would wake up in the morning, they would go to the temple to start work, and they knew that the atmosphere would be terrible, and people would be there trying to hinder them from the work. It was an intimidating and difficult time to work there. But in verse 5, things grew up a gear. Well, the enemies then started bribing the officials. Now, the enemy knew that the project was dependent upon the patronage of King Cyrus. So they attempted to get his officials to undermine it through bribery. We don't know exactly what they were bribed to do, but perhaps they bribed those that were responsible for trade routes, blocking the timber that was coming from Lebanon. It would be like us getting planning, needing planning permission for a church project and the councillors being bribed to put obstacles in place for our building work. Or perhaps to give poor materials or something like that. This frustrated their plans, verse 5 tells us, all the way down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now at this point we need to stop. And we need to see who these kings were that are talked about through the rest of the chapter. And I'm going to show you on the screen a list of kings. These are the lists of kings of the Persian Empire in the Bible. Now there's more after the last one, but they're not contained in Scripture. They come a bit later on. But you have King Cyrus, who was the first one who issued the decree, and in whose reign this rebuilding work started. Verse 5 begins during the reign of Cyrus, but it says that this frustration of the plans went all the way through to the reign of Darius. Well, this would have included the reign of Cambyses and of Pseudo-Smerdes. He was a, a usurper that only reigned for a matter of months before King Darius came along and took the throne for himself. But it means that this opposition in verse 5 of discouragement and bribery and undermining went on for about 20 years. 
But eventually, we will see in verses 5 and 6 that the temple was rebuilt. And then we see opposition heating up even more during the uh, time of Nehemiah, the next book in the Bible. So in verse 6, we have the first of three letters. And this one, the first one, was in the reign of Xerxes. And in verse 6, it was a letter of accusation. We have no indication of when this accusation was, or what it was, except it was during the reign of Xerxes. Nothing seems to have come of this accusation, but it's a sign of this opposition getting even worse, isn't it? We, we all know what it feels like to be falsely accused of something. In verse 7, during the reign of Artaxerxes, the next king, another letter was sent, but again, nothing seems to come of it. But in verse 8, the letter is successful. Notice there's three verses, three letters. This is a sustained attack against the people of God. The enemy doesn't rest. The enemy keeps going. The enemy sustains his attack. That's why Peter describes uh, Satan as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's that image of, of prowling around. And that's why Jesus tells us to watch and pray. But this letter in verse 8 goes further than an accusation. It's an actual legal challenge to the king. Now, this is about 80 years after verse 5. As we said, the writer of this account is looking back over years of history, telling us of this sustained attack against the people of God. And it begins in verse 9, showing the craftiness of the enemy. There's a long list in verses 9 to 11 that is aimed at impressing the king. Notice the titles that they give, the names that they drop, showing the king how great the people of this letter are. These are respectable people writing this letter. And at this time in Persian history, there was lots of rebellion. So in verse 12, when it uses the word rebellion, it was designed to, to prick the ears of the king. He would think, oh, these are respectable people. These are, are talking about rebellion. Oh, this must be true. This is frightening. This is scary. This would have got the king's attention. Now, a city without walls is not much of a threat, but in verse 12, it says that they're restoring the walls and the foundations. This would have been worrying for the king. Now, the next book of the Bible is the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the walls, but evidently, up to the point of Nehemiah coming, there were attempts to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. This is one of those attempts. This king Artaxerxes is the same king that Nehemiah went to a bit later on. In verse 13, they outline the consequences of rebellion. But king Artaxerxes, if they build these walls, there'll be no taxes. That's probably from the highways coming into the city. There'll be no tribute, which is the fee that is given to the empire from the, from the land. And no duties, like the, the VAT won't be paid on all the goods. And King Xerxes had fought lots of expensive wars against the Greeks. And Artaxerxes was still paying for that. He was not wanting to lose money. This was a worrying time. Artaxerxes doesn't want his income reduced. He thinks, oh, no taxes, no, no duty, no tribute. What am I going to do? How can I afford to have my empire? 
Notice in verse 14 the, the playing up to him. He says, well, we are under, your obliga- under obligation to the palace. We, we don't want the king to be dishonored. King Artaxerxes, we want your name to be, to, to, to be elevated. We don't want you to be dishonored by these people. And in verse 15, they recommend this historical search. Now, the ancient people kept records They kept long records. You can see some of them if you go to the British Museum. And Israel had rebelled. But the last time was 150 years ago against Assyria and against Babylon. These people here had never rebelled against Persia. Rebellion had led them into exile. They weren't going to do that. But 150 years ago they did. And they said, well, if you look back, you'll see that. It's it's, it's, it's as if, it's, it's like us, not talking to a French person because, well, the Battle of Trafalgar, oh, you know, it was 200 years ago. But that's what they're doing here. They're bringing it up, doing whatever they can so that the king would be against the people of God. Despite them being as good as gold now, they were accused of being rebellious again. And then finally, if you look at verse 16, you see the exaggeration. They say, well, if this city is built, then you'll be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. Nothing. The whole of the area west of the river Euphrates, a massive area. You'll have nothing left if Jerusalem, one city, rebuilds its walls. Well, the king, he fell for it. The records did show that there was rebellion. There was a history of revolt. But the king also fell for this exaggeration. Look at verse 20. It says, Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of the trans-Euphrates. Well, Israel never had a king that ruled over the whole of the trans-Euphrates. Even King David and King Solomon never had the whole of the land of Euphrates. And so he ordered the people to stop work. And as you come to verse 23, it tells us, that this legal challenge went into outright persecution. And in verse 23, it says that the people were compelled by force to stop. And in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 3, Nehemiah hears of the walls of Jerusalem being broken down and the gates being burned with fire. And this is probably what he's referring to. It's the same king around the same time. And Nehemiah goes back, and you can read that book and see how he did rebuild the walls, but the persecution of the people of God, it went from just discouragement, and it goes all the way to full-on force against God's people. When God is at work, God's people follow God's word, but God's people come under attack. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul writes, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you've not suffered any of these hindrances in your life to God's work, then you have to question, are you living a godly life? Have you never been discouraged in the work of God? Have you never been undermined or accused or any of those things? This is the Christian life. This is what it is to follow Christ. We bear a cross And it is hard work. We know, though, that both the wall and the temple were rebuilt. But verse 24 tells us that the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. 
until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. In verse 23, the walls stopped being built. So we have to ask the question, was the enemy successful? Is there enemy success? Well, yes, in a, in a way, they stopped the work, but we know that the work in the end was successful. And there are two important points to remember in the midst of enemy attack that we can take from these passages. First of all, God is in control. Notice in verse 21 of the letter that the king wrote back. He said, now issue an order to these men to stop the work so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Until I so order. There's a loophole right there in the letter. We know from scripture that once the king of Persia had issued a decree, there's no turning back. We see that in Daniel uh, chapter 6 and Esther chapter 1. The king issues a decree, there's no turning back. You can't amend it. But here, there's a loophole until I order it. And in Nehemiah, it was overturned. Nehemiah goes to the king and the king says, go and rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. God is in control. And God is the one that even allows the enemy to attack. Why? Because secondly, in enemy attack, we must remember that our response is important as well. Sometimes the work is stopped by force. Sometimes there's not much we can do. But in the context of chapter 5, as we'll see next week, the people of God building the temple weren't stopped by force. They were stopped by discouragement and they were stopped by frustration. And in the context of chapter 5, it seems that they gave up just a little bit too easily. And for 20 years, didn't do very much until Haggai came and gave him a kick up the backside so that they would start serving God as they should. So in the midst of enemy attack, we shouldn't expect to have an easy life and so give up serving God. We must carry on. We must persevere until the end. God does not leave us, though, on our own. And I just want to end very quickly with three uh, ways that we fight the enemy. Three ways we fight the enemy. First of all, we read in Ephesians chapter 6 that God gives us his word as a sword to fight with. We have the word of God. With the Bible, we know what is right, what is not right. We know how to get right. We know how to stay right. We should be reading it and meditating on it day by day to fight the attacks of the enemy. Secondly, God gives us his spirit to help us understand his word, to call us to pray and to guide us in our fight. So pray, pray, pray. Watch and pray, as Jesus tells us to do. And thirdly and finally, God gives us his people to fight alongside. So often when we come under attack, church is the thing we give up and we stay away. But we have brothers and sisters who we fight alongside, who fight with us in the spiritual battle. Let me conclude with some words from Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle faced spiritual warfare. He faced more attacks than most Christians you'll ever meet. But at the end of his life, he said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Let us close with a word of prayer. Father, we ask for your help through your word and your spirit and your people. 
to fight whatever attacks the enemy is throwing at us. We struggle with attacks to temptation to sin. We struggle with discouragement. We struggle with external attacks that come against us that try to shake us from following you. May we stand firm till the end and fight the good fight. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we come to the Lord's table, uh, we're going to sing, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found. And in that final verse, we read that no power of hell and no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hands. So let's stand and sing to our God.